Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. So, um, Lent is a time of preparation for Easter. It is a season, it's a liturgical season that marks the journey towards the cross and towards the resurrection of Jesus. And it's modeled after the 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus spends fasting and reflecting before he is crucified and eventually resurrected. And a lot happens to Jesus when he's in the wilderness, being... um, But one of the things that happens is he is tempted by Satan. I don't know if you might remember this from the book of Matthew. He uh, has an encounter with with the devil and, and Satan tempts him and offers him multiple things. And this is one thing that we find in the in the book of Matthew. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. So this season that we're in is about the human walk of facing temptation. The walk that Jesus himself walked on the way to the cross. And although Jesus does not succumb to temptation, because he is human, he is fully human and fully God, he walks the very human walk between serving God and getting distracted by the voices of evil. So if we take it back to the beginning, back back to the beginning, let's go back, back to the beginning. Any Hillary Duff? I'm very millennial. You'll know my generation, okay? But if we go back to the beginning, this has been part of our whole situation as humans. We have been tempted by enticing offers of evil from the beginning. And we're going all the way back to Genesis, okay? The garden, Adam and Eve, and the forbidden fruit. Uh, this is actually what the lect- one of the passages the lectionary offered for this Sunday. And I, I was like, you know, let's get into it. Um, as we talk about limits, right? Limits and lessons. So I'm going to read a passage from Genesis, and then then we'll talk more. So this is after the whole in the beginning, the earth is created, yada, yada. You get that part, okay? We're going to fast forward. We're going to fast forward to when it starts to get a little messy, because all oh, that's good, right? That's, that's the good part. And then some things happen. So, God says, hang on, let me find my spot here. Okay. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Okay. You can see the um, spirit Halloween costumes, right? With the fig, the fig loincloths. All of this is so much part of our culture. It's so much uh, embedded in our our psyche as Western civilization. And this story has been used in primarily two ways. It's been used as purely just a literal historical account of the beginning of time. And it's also been used as a perfect example of the ways we screwed everything our original sin. It's been used to prove that we've been flawed from the beginning. But I have, I have a few questions. One, this book took centuries to write, okay? This is a work of art. This isn't something that, you know, was just scribbled down and then handed to us the next day. It is a work of art. And neither can it be reduced to a to a historical account pulled straight from the archives, right? Just to be taken at face value with no other meaning than just the words on the page. But it also cannot be reduced to an irrelevant piece of fiction, okay? There's a middle ground here. Scripture is always an invitation to return to God to dwell in the imagination of God. It's a living word. And this story can speak to us today and can help us know our human limits better and find our way back to God. So now that we have that covered, that this isn't uh, just a history book and it's not just a fun novel to read, it's the living word of God that invites us to transformation. So I have a few, a few ideas here. So um, there's this idea that things were already perfect and then humans screwed everything up. But okay, there is this crafty serpent in the garden and later Christians would associate the serpent with the devil, although it never mentions that. Um, So, but I think to say that Adam and Eve caused the fall of all creation, it has, that has some problems for me. First of all, it makes God appear to be surprised by evil. I mean, if God is all-knowing, wouldn't God own in advance that Adam and Eve would disobey? And why start this whole thing if you, if, if he already knew it was going to fail, if this was a test just set up for Adam and Eve to fail, why, why begin the beautiful effort of creating the world? This interpretation to me makes God out to be kind of an incompetent planner <laughs> who is thrown off by efforts of evil. And 
we aren't going to get into the shame of Eve, but Eve has gotten a lot of her share of the blame, and this has had harmful effects. So why was this crafty talking serpent allowed in the perfect garden in the first place? I think a better understanding of this story is to see it as a beautiful and complex effort to understand how we got to where we are. This story is less about a perfect utopia that is ruined by humans and more about a relationship between us and our creator and creation that we've been entrusted to and the ways we choose to get distracted by evil. So if there was this crafty serpent, it's not to say that this is a perfect utopia, right? There's already some vulnerability here. There's already some limitations with a snake on the loose whispering in people's ears. This isn't heaven, you see. This is earth. This is a story about the creation of the world we live in, which is not perfect. And we do have a role to play in that, no doubt. So what role do we play? We are still in a garden with God. We are still entrusted with stewarding the precious earth of creation, and we are still getting distracted. And the shame of pop Christianity could be one of these distractions. We could become so frustrated with this story and how it's been interpreted that we just leave it on the shelf and seek out other easier stories to find. This one has too much baggage, if you will. But shame be damned. Lent isn't about beating ourselves up every time we let the serpent win. It's about stripping away every single thing that weighs us down, promises us kingdoms and immortal wisdom while leaving us off worse than we were before. Knowing more than we can bear to understand and feeling more ashamed of our humanity than we did to begin with. So how would we react if the serpent comes up and tells us lies, okay? We have a few choices, and I'm going to take this by Enneagram number. I know some are familiar with the Enneagram. <laughs> I think number one, and if you aren't, then you'll start, you'll learn a few things from my, from my vision here. Uh, number one would say this is not the rule. This is definitely not okay, sneaky snake. I don't know what you're up to, but God has told me one thing, and I honestly don't think that the number one would break the rules and eat the fruit, to be honest. <laughs> number two would be like, I think um, number two would say, how can I, you know, help you serpent? Do you need some help? And how can I help you accomplish what you need to do? And so the serpent would maybe feel bad for the snake and like, who's looking out for you? Maybe I can help you with this. Number three is like, oh, immortality and success and all the things, give me that. I want that. I will eat the fruit because if it gets me closer to my goal, I'll do it. Number four, my own sign, I will, or my own number, I will claim, claim, no, I'm a Leo. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I mix those up all the time, but I am a four. 
And I think my sign would say, or my, my number would say, um, would say, oh, that's the thing that's going to make me special and whole. You have the missing component of my life. You have the thing I've been longing for, serpent. Let me take this fruit so that I can be special. Number five would have a lot more research to do before any of this happened. Number five would be like, we haven't even fully scoped out the whole situation here. Number six is like, this seems really unsafe. I'm not going to be safe. God has told me a rule, and that rule will keep me safe. Maybe I shouldn't break it. I think six also wouldn't take the fruit. Number seven is like, this is going to be fun. <laughs> let's, let's take this fruit. I'm ready to have some fun. Um, and I don't care, you know, what will happen. Number eight, I think, would be mad at the snake for trying to trick it and would just try to fight the snake. <laughs> Those are, that's my best effort on how the Enneagram. Number nine. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Number nine would not be able to decide which is the best option. <laughs> like, number nine would just be paralyzed by lack of decision. So this is just a funny effort. Uh, I mean no harm to your number individually. Um, but we all have ways that we would react, right? We all, have, we all have ways we would react to temptation, to distractions, to an enticing opportunity that could maybe get us something that we want, right? We can all relate to this. And this is the beauty of free will. God gives us free will because God loves us and God wants us to have the process of choosing what we would do. And that's why I think it's also important to say that I don't think God is like this trickster who set up a trap for the mice with cheese, knowing that they would take the the cheese, waiting for them to bite, and then, oh, you ruined everything, story's over. I think it's more complicated than that. I think that God is interested in a process of restoration, even when we keep getting distracted by tempting offers that don't come from God. Curiosity killed the cat. As a, as a lover of my two cats, this is not a phrase I love very much, but I do know that one of my cats loves to see what's behind a door. And if the door is closed, he is very interested in that door, right? The mystery of the unknown, of not having what he could have, makes it very intriguing to, to him. And so he'll meow and scratch at the door because it's out of sight. It's something he can't have. It's a limit from me. And I really want him to understand, Tojo, no knowledge outside that door is going to change your life. <laughs> I promise. There is nothing on the outside of that door in the hallway that will make life different for you. You have everything you need here with me. That is a limit. That is the boundary that God set in the garden. 
and the boundary that was violated in the story of Adam and Eve. Limits are good for us. Limits can be a massive gift. Because the offer from the serpent, what's the offer, right? The offer to Jesus was to have all these kingdoms and riches and knowledge of the world. And he said no. But the offer to Adam and Eve was to be like God. To know, to have knowledge of good and evil. To become wise. And because serpents were associated with immortality in ancient Near East, in Israelite folklore, there's an idea of you can be immortal if you eat this fruit. Here they have everything they need. They have every good thing. And they have work to do. But it's that one thing they don't have that gets the distraction. To be like God, oh my. What a temptation. Well, you don't face that, do you? I mean... You don't ever want to be really powerful and in control and have all the things go your way and live forever. You don't ever want that. I know I do sometimes. We all, as humans, we face this distraction. We have every good thing in front of us, but we focus on the one thing we don't have. The thing that promises, it's so seductive, it promises to fix all our problems, but it never really saves us in the ways that God can. And this idea of knowledge, right, we are such a culture obsessed with knowledge, of of understanding and acquiring more knowledge, but does knowledge always change us? When we know things, do we always do different? (laughs) We know a lot of things. Do we act on the things we know? The city of Dallas has participated in racial equity audits and has learned about the staggering statistics that show the ways that people of color are disproportionately affected by poverty and houselessness here in our city. They know this. They have the knowledge and the statistics. And still we as a community, nothing changes. Legislation that could protect tenants instead of protecting the freedom of landlords would be a good limit. But the powerful systems we are connected to are not concerned with the well-being of God's creation. They are more interested in the fruit of power and immortality and being like God. We in Deep Ellum know that perpetually rearranging houseless people, moving them from here to here, is both inhumane and inefficient to solve a complex problem, but we continue to do it. We know. (laughs) And we still as a culture keep seeking art and trying to create artificial intelligence. You know, AI is the whole new thing. 
But I wonder if we're already dealing with some artificial intelligence. (laughs) Because here's the thing. If it is a knowledge that doesn't lead us to know God better or to care more about our neighbor or the person who needs our help or those who are marginalized, it's artificial. It's not lasting. Knowledge for knowledge's sake, to to make us better and more godlike, this is not true knowledge. And sometimes the fact that we can't have something makes it all the more attractive to us. Rather than just focusing on this story as an example of original sin, which I think, I think you, can, you can go there. Sinfulness is present in this story, and I'm not going to uh, say it's not. But here's what I would say. The tree of good and evil can be seen as the force in the world, in our lives, in our churches, that distract us from the good work that God has for us to do. It's the things that distract us, right? It's everything that is not God and does not come from God. And because we're not in heaven yet, there is a lot of that too. It's knowing you shouldn't say that thing because you know it may harm your relationship with the other person, but it's that piece of juicy gossip and so you say, oh, I probably shouldn't say. But then your friend is like, oh, now you gotta say eating the fruit, taking the fruit. It's being in the middle of heartbreak and then deciding to stalk your ex on Instagram. (laughs) As if knowing what they're up to and seeing that post that you know is going to hurt your heart. That knowledge you know is going to hurt. But what do you do when they post? You pull that up. You go look at what they're up to. It takes us back to what Brandy Carlisle calls that worn out place in the song, The Eye. That worn out place where life doesn't come forth, but we think it will. It looks pretty seductive. It looks promising. This can happen in our church work together too. We could be tempted to have long discussions and pursuits of understanding and committees and meetings and talking that end up leaving us more divided and distracted than we were to begin with. As Daniela said a few weeks ago, we can have plans to grow our church, but it's God that makes the growth happen. We can easily get distracted from the good work that God already has for us to do. But in the midst of pain, we think that that one more bit of information will save us. But there is no, here's the thing, there is no tree that can save us. Only God can save us. Only God's love can redeem us. And we can keep climbing up trees of other knowledge and fruits, but we will come up empty-handed. 
this, this is a hard season because it's about limits. It's the unfun part of Christianity. We have two options with limits. We can feel frustrated by them and perpetually try to transcend them, try to understand and become more godlike. We can push against the limits and test the limits of God. We can seek out the places of distraction in our lives that promise us more than they can really offer. Or when we feel that limit, we can let it bounce us back to the middle of the garden, to the place where there is plenty of good work to do. And this is one of the many paradoxes of faith because God isn't asking us to avoid understanding or seeking wisdom, but it's the end goal of that knowledge. Remember, Adam and Eve pursued knowledge for themselves to make them better and more powerful. Knowledge itself isn't bad, but where does that knowledge take you? That's the question. There will always be parts of the garden that are off limits. There will always be parts of God's mysteries that are unknown. There will always be powers we don't have access to, and life is limited. Big bummer. <laughs> but we may be more grateful for those limits than you might think. If you could know exactly how your life played out, would you want to know that? No. There's a goodness to limits. And my hope and my prayer is in this season of Lent, we start to explore what good limits we might need in our lives. Don't hear me as this shameful, you know, message of, from your childhood. That's not what I'm saying. But there are good limits that lead to life. Limits of being human will find us again and again. Because the truth is that we are not God, and we never will be God. And that is the best news of all. Because we are God's creation. And there's a garden that's waiting for us to get busy tending to it. People who need to know that they're loved. Communities that need to know that they matter. The garden is ready, and we have work to do. Healing and justice and compassion, restoration, watering and sowing and pruning. There is so much work to do in the garden. So let us not be distracted by that which offers us something that we don't really need. limits can be good. That's the point. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this very old story 
and the ways that it speaks to us in new ways. We confess to you, O Lord, that sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we seek outside of ourselves anything to fill the hole, anything to make us better and more powerful. And meanwhile, you call us back, back to the work that you have sought out for us to do. In this season of Lent, God, help us at Life in Debellum return to you. Help us return to the life-giving parts of the garden. We lay down anything else that distracts us. We lay it down here, God. We give it to you. And we return to your good work, your good garden. And we're so very thankful that you've entrusted us to care for it. It's all this we ask in your son's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.